Satanic Matrix Awareness. This is Matthew back with part seven on the concise history of the common law. And we left off with John Locke and the revolution. If Hobbes represents the dis desperate longing for an omnipotent peaceful state which was natural in the midst of the darkest hours of the 17th century. It is John Locke that we find after the storm had passed a quiet summary of achievement, full of the spirit of compromise. In the 19th century, when it seemed that the Leviathan had indeed come to life, Hobbes was to receive due recognition. But in the 18th century, it was rather John Locke's influence which was paramount, for it was he who discovered a reasonable philosophical basis for the whole of 17th century history and more particularly for the revolution of 1689 john locke learned from history something that hobbes refused to consider he made a great plea for religious toleration and embodied it in the fundamental constitution of carolina which he drafted in 1669 on the invitation of the proprietors of the province and his example was to be improved by william penn in his form of government for pennsylvania it is to John Locke that we owe a reasonable theory of limited monarchy, which was to become the creed of the Whig party. Locke's view of the contract was much less extreme than that of Hobbes. In his thought, every individual conveys to society as a whole his right of executing the law of nature. All other natural rights he retains. Locke, therefore, brings us back to the old idea that the powers of the state are limited to certain purposes. It is his discussion of the mode in which those powers are exercised which has the greatest interest at the present day. His theory of reserved natural rights leaves a large place for religious toleration, while the limitations he places upon the state are more in accordance with history than is the absolute Leviathan which Hobbes conceived. Where Hobbes had considered law to be the command of the state, Locke returned to the notion of natural law, a conception which was easily reconciled with the medieval view of law as the will of God. Where Hobbes had made law the tool of the state, Locke regarded it as a guardian of liberty. Locke declared that the legislature is the supreme power in state, and from this he deduced certain maxims of constitutional practice which, in fact, were the historical settlement reached at the end of the 17th century. And so, beginning from the general philosophical and theoretical considerations, Locke proceeds to give a philosophical defense of such very practical measures of, as the Bill of Rights, the Act of Settlement, Parliamentary Control over Taxation, and the whole machinery of limited monarchy. It seems that Locke was the first modern theorist to propound a doctrine of the separation of powers, he observed that legislation is, on his day, was an intermittent function, while the executive, on the other hand, must never cease its activity. Consequently, the two are better assigned to different bodies, which he observes is almost universally the practice. And, and here... And here we seem to see an example of that comparative study of institutions, which had been prominent in England ever since the days of Fortisic, Sir Thomas Smith, and others. In his discussion of the relations between the legislature and the executive, Locke very clearly is thinking of current 
politics, although his treatment is confined to scrupulously general terms. How close this theory was to current practical politics can be seen where he urges the separation of legislature from executive. This object would have been achieved through the passage we have just quoted from the Act of Settlement, excluding ministers from the House of Commons, which was passed only four years before the death of Locke. Locke's suggestions on the separation of powers were obviously derived from his observation of contemporary English practice. Indeed, the easy way in which he seems to take the situation for granted is an indication that he felt it too obvious to need very detailed theoretical treatment. It is only a century later that his work will be used as a basis for a rediscovery by the great philosopher Montesquieu, Montesquieu of a general theoretical doctrine. Of the separation of powers such as Aristotle such as Aristotle and Marisiglio had suggested in ancient and medieval times, John Locke, therefore, may be regarded as expressing to a peculiar degree the compromise and settlement which the nation had reached when the expulsion of the Stuarts and the ascension of William III had enabled political passions to die down. His summary of the results of the great conflict remained for many years the justification on philosophical grounds of the compromise which practical politics had reached, and with his work, the tumultuous drama of the 17th century fittingly ends on a quiet and hopeful note. Locke's theories have been aptly summarized in the following words. It was a theory of a state of nature that was not altogether bad, and its transformation into a civil state that was not altogether good, by a contract that was not very precise in its terms or very clear in its sanction. It embodied, moreover, a conception of sovereignty of the people without too much of either sovereignty or people of the law of nature that involved not clear definition of either law or nature, of natural rights, but not too many of them, and of a separation of powers that was not too much of a separation. It concluded finally with a doctrine as to the right of revolution that left no guarantee whatever for the permanence of the rather loose joined structure which the rest of the theory had built up. Yet this illogical and coherent system of political philosophy was excellently adapted to the constitutional system which England needed at the time and which the Whigs actually put and kept in operation. It was a good, respectable, common-sense view of the features of the political life that impressed a philosophical observer.
Hello everyone, want to support the podcast and get a year free of power, no payments, and get 30% back from the federal government when you buy solar? Then go visit www.gosunnysavemoney.com today. It was strong in the individual parts, if not in their correlation. It was far better adapted to make an impression on thinking Englishmen than were the more logical systems of Hobbes and Spinoza. The 18th century industrial revolution, agriculture. The 18th century is the great dividing line in English economic development between medieval and modern times. The central point in its history is usually referred to as industrial revolution which was rather in point of fact a long and slow process which began to accelerate towards the middle of the century. Its results were to change the face of England completely. Its mode of life, its source of wealth, even its colonial passions were all radically changed as an outcome of this movement. So far the structure of the nation had been essentially medieval, so too had been its law. If we are to seek the fundamental notes of this medieval policy, we shall find that they were based upon the fact that the normal occupation of the bulk of the inhabitants was agriculture. The great source of wealth was the land, and such capitalism as existed looked mainly to the land for its profits. The social structure of society was built upon this idea. The legal aspect of all this is clearly visible. Land was a principal form of wealth, and therefore the principal source of power, and the law had to take account of this situation. First of all, King's Court assumed complete control over the land, and thereby over the landlords, landowners. The law of the land was rapidly developed to an astonishing degree, and every means was adopted of protecting landed property to the fullest extent. It was only natural that the land should therefore be the symbol of economic and social permanence, and that efforts should be made to perpetuate the social system founded upon it. Even in the Middle Ages, however, there were the beginnings of other forms of wealth, and as time proceeds, commerce takes an increasing place in national life. Nevertheless, for a long time it was the policy of the law to separate the two. It is curious to observe that merchants very nearly became in a state of the realm and occasionally we find what looks like a parliament of merchants. There was a chance that in England, as in some other countries, there might have grown up a house of merchants in parliament. The separation of commerce from the normal occupation of the nation was further emphasized by the fact that the merchants had their own organization and their own law. It is only as a result of many centuries of history culminating in the Industrial Revolution that these barriers were broken down. It is familiar knowledge that such bodies of mercantile law as those relating to bankruptcy and negotiable instruments for a long time pertained exclusively to merchants. Indeed, a separate organization was set up to supervise the affairs of insolvent debtors who were not merchants and therefore outside of the law of bankruptcy. It was only as late as 1690 that the law considered the possibility of a non-merchant being a party to bill of exchange, merchants, and finance. Although the Middle Ages were so predominantly agricultural, 
it is still possible and indeed very necessary to trace in them the beginning of commerce. In English history, two commodities are of particular significance, wool and wine. Wool growing was the great source of England's position in international politics during the Middle Ages. The wool was grown in England, was exported to Flanders, and there in great Flemish fairs it was distributed throughout Europe. England's monopoly on wool was so effective that the crown could afford to levy heavy taxes upon its export and upon occasion could bring powerful pre pressure to bear on foreign nations by diverting the wool trade from one port to another or even by suspending it altogether. Financially, the wool trade was conducted on a capitalistic basis. In early days, Leader, the leaders of the industry were the Cistercian monks, whose mode of life was to build their abbeys in remote places among the hills and occupy themselves with sheep farming. As for the smaller growers of wool, it seems that arrangements were made to buy up their crops in advance, the sale being effected through the assistance of foreign capital. It is significant that credit took the form principally of advanced payments to the growers for future delivery. Middlemen were a prominent feature of the trade, and behind them stood great foreign capital, capitalists. The same was true of the important import trade in wine. It is obvious that we have complicated relationships involving very important interests, and we may be certain that the result must have been the development of a good deal of commercial law. It is typical of the Middle Ages, however, that this law should not should be not the law of the land, but the law of a particular class of people developed through custom and enforced through their own organization. As for the capitalists whom we have mentioned, their place becomes increasingly important through the Middle Ages. In England, a large part was played by the Jews until they were expelled by Edward I. Ah, in England, a large part was played by the Jews until they were expelled by Edward I. So the Jews were expelled from England. Hmm. Makes you think. Their place was then taken by various groups of bankers from the cities of northern Italy. The financial center of London is still called Lombard Street. A considerable place, too, was occupied by certain religious orders whose international organization was a convenient machinery ready-made for large-scale banking. Their considerable wealth also enabled them to one, at one time to undertake capitalistic operations, although by the close of the Middle Ages, many monasteries were in the financial difficulties as a result of heavy royal and papal taxation. Indeed, this tendency of large religious organizations being deeply involved in finance persisted into modern times. In more than one country, the principal cause for the expulsion of the Jesuits in the 18th and 19th centuries was a fear of their financial activities. As for manufacturers, development was at first most rapid in Flanders, 
where English wool was made up on a large scale, it was to Edward III that credit is largely due for the establishment of the textile industry in England. His queen was Flemish, and it may be her connection with Flanders which led him to invite some Flemish weavers to settle in England. Nevertheless, the English textile industry was still purely domestic, that is to say, carried on in the home of the worker, and not its not in a factory. The Industrial Revolution, the transition from this state of things to conditions which are familiar today, was affected principally in the 18th century. Wool growing had increasingly enor- had increased enormously and was conducted on a very large scale. This became possible through the great enclosure movements of the 16th and 18th centuries, whereby a great deal of common land, together with land which once had been arable, was turned over to sheep farming. Besides this great change from crop raising to sheep farming, which was the cause, incidentally, of a great deal of unemployment and agritin unrest, the textile industry also underwent a great change. The already existing tendency for a number of textile workers to become dependent upon one employer was immensely increased. By the introduction of machinery, and here we reached the greatest single cause of the Industrial Revolution. By means of machinery, more work could be done at less expense and with less labor. Soon it became clear that the price also was reduced and the great movement began whereby trade gathered an ever-increasing momentum. The more there was produced, the more the demand increased. And in the end, the manufacturers were able to some extent to set the price of industrial development. The introduction of water power and very soon afterwards steam power gave England a tremendous advantage. Wow, you hear that? The introduction of water power and very soon afterwards steam power. So we've already had water power and steam power. There was no reason for any other power source at that point. Gave England a tremendous advantage for ample supplies of coal were easily accessible. Consequently, the Industrial Revolution pursued a much more rapid course in England than in the rest of Europe. Legal consequences. The task which faced the law was to meet these new requirements. Land was no longer to be its principal concern. Other forms of wealth were demanding protection. As the growth of machinery proceeded, the cost of Equipping a factory became considerable and usually exceeded the resources of a single manufacturer. Various forms of cooperative effort had been inherited from the Middle Ages, which had long been familiar, at least on the continent where there was a development law of partnership in several varieties. Such forms of joint enterprise in 17th century England were usually employed in colonial expansion or distant foreign trade. The law had now to consider some means of placing these advantages within the reach of smaller men who did not require the elaborate organization of such bodies as the East India Company or the Bank of England. It was also a growing necessity that banking should be developed and out of the practice of London, goldsmiths who would receive deposits and issue against them interest-bearing notes then arose, first of all, Bank of England, and soon a large number of private banks in different parts of the country. 
The law had, therefore, to consider all of the complicated relationships which were being created through the machinery of credit and joint enterprise. It is the 18th century, therefore, that we must look for the rise of the most of the law, which is of a distinctly modern character, that is to say, of personal property in general, and especially of stock shares and the like, of companies and their stock, partnerships of negotiable instruments, contract, bankruptcy, and master and servant. In effecting these developments, the 18th century achieved this transition from medieval to modern times. Politics had its part in the history of this development. The fall of James II had been due, in some measure at least, to the fact that the city of London and its financial interests thoroughly distrusted his policy. Although his opponents were, of course, drawn largely from the nobility, nevertheless, city interests played a considerable part. One of the most significant results of the Revolution of 1689 was the foundation of the Bank of England, which was designed primarily to finance the French War. The founders leading a considerable sum of money to the government and using the government debt as part of their capital. So, wow, look at these demons. They funded the war in 1689 with the foundation of the Bank of England. In consequence, the bank was closed, connected with the revolution settlement. It was generally felt through the country that any restoration of the stewards would imperil the bank. And as the bank's activities grew wider than the country, was less and less inclined to take the risk. The Whig Party had therefore a marked commercial character, while the Tories were still apt to be representative of the landed interest. The legal consequences of the Industrial Revolution were affected partly through legislation, but more largely through the development of case law, and a little group of judges who were far-sighted enough to divine the direction in which events were moving, were able to quietly and without commotion to perform the great work of taking over the existing mercantile law and custom and incorporating it into the law of the land. Of this we shall speak more in treating of the history of the law merchant. Uh, one other great result of the Industrial Revolution has been to produce a new internationalism, international commerce, in many different nations, was to develop along parallel lines and the basis of new commercial law, was in every case to be old custom of merchants, and one of the features of this custom had been its growing international character. Therefore, there was therefore a tendency for commercial law in different countries to proceed broadly upon parallel lines. Local diversities there were, inevitably, they had been even more serious in the Middle Ages. But in spite of this, some general features remained constant. At the same time, international trade was taking a much greater place. More and more commodities passed from country to country and an increasing number of merchants were engaged in foreign business. This also emphasized the tendency for commercial problems to be considered from an international standpoint. The movement is one of the most striking features of our own day. International trade and finance are having their effort upon commercial law, and the time seems not far distant when commercial law will regain its medieval aspect of internationalism
This progressive feature of our 18th century law is honorably shown in the life of Lord Mansfield, who tried to treat some of the ancient portions of the common law in the same liberal spirit as the newer commercial law, which he was so instrumental in developing. His contemporary, Sir William Blackstone, although an admirer of Mansfield, and at times a critic of the law as it then existed, was not a reformer by temperament, and his commentaries 1776 then as now have the impression of almost indiscriminate praise for the great bulk of the old law which the courts had been accustomed to administer. The law of real property notably was undergoing immense elaboration with the results which were by no means satisfactory. If the landed interests were to retain their dominant place in national affairs, then agriculture would have to compete with the newer forms of commercialism. Great improvements were made during the 18th century in scientific farming and agricultural made rapid strides as a source of wealth. The effective output both in crops and herds was increased and improved enormously until it became clear that agricultural afforded opportunities for commercial enterprise. This development, however, could only be achieved by considerable capital outlay upon improvement and was seriously hampered by the law of real property. Land cannot take its place in a commercial scheme of things as long as it was so difficult to deal with. The 17th and 18th century lawyers had developed elaborate methods of placing land beyond the control of the tenant in possession. And when they tried to retrace their steps in an endeavor to give the great landlord powers to charge and to sell, their remedies were equally cumbersome, under, uncertain, and expensive. It is not until the close of the 18th century that any substantial progress was made towards providing simpler law of land, and to this day the process is still going on. At the same time, there was a movement not fully effective until the early years of the 19th century for radically reforming the whole of the procedural side of law. I'm going to leave off here because I'm getting tired. So we'll be here at Montesquieu. We'll go back for part eight. Okay, so thanks for listening. Satanic Matrix Awareness. This was part seven, a concise history of the common law. And this is a huge book, over 800 pages. So I guess it'll take forever to read it. But one day at a time, we'll get through this book and we'll learn the common law, uh, the history of it. And then we'll figure out some more stuff after that. So thanks for listening. Satanic Matrix Awareness. Share this podcast. Donate. Um, Thanks for listening. I'm out.